It is a joy to be in God's house with you all today, to worship with you, to hear from his word, and uh, we're excited to still be in the book of John, as we have been for over a year now. This is our 60th sermon in the book of John, and uh, like I said, it has been a joy to open this book repeatedly with you all. And the purpose of the book of John is so that we might see him, that we might behold the Christ, that we might know him, that we might see his life, that we might see his actions, his deeds, his nature, his character, and that by beholding him, that we would believe on him, and that by believing on him, we might have life in his name. Do you remember that? We've talked about that repeatedly. That the purpose of the book of John is so that we would behold. I've been using that word all the time because it's not just like a recognition. It's not just where you would go, oh yeah, that's Jesus. Oh yeah, that's God. Oh yeah, that's... But there is a, a cherishing, a treasuring that you would see Christ for who he is. That the Spirit of God would take the Word of God and drive it into our hearts. That it would be so true because it is the absolute truest true. You know what I'm saying? Like the Word of God, he has spoken through these beautiful authors. He has spoken through this word that we might see and behold him and that by believing, beholding him, believing on him, that we would have eternal life. And so over the last year plus, we've been looking at the book of John and now we are in the middle of it. We are in, this is what it has all come down to, the crucifixion. That God himself would hang on a tree and die for you and for me. Over the last two weeks, we've started to dig into the crucifixion, that the entire life of Christ has been leading up to this moment that he would die. And I've been asking us over the last few weeks to personalize this, right? A lot of times we can look at scripture, we can look at uh, theology, or we can look at concepts in the church, and we can think of it in cosmic levels, it's just good pieces of information or good pieces of theology. And there's a mental ascent that happens, but not a personalization that happens in our soul. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about his kingship. How that sign that he wore around his neck said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He was paraded through the streets, and that sign was nailed to the top of the cross. Above him, and it said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Pilate over and over, do you want me to crucify your king? Like, no, don't call him that. We have no king but Caesar, but he is king. And he's not just king on a cosmic level, but on a personal level, is he king? Does he rule and reign over your life? Does he rule and reign over your thoughts, over your actions, over your heart, as we sang about this morning? Have we personalized the kingship of Jesus where it's not my will, my life, my ambition, my American dream, but no, this life is now claimed by Christ for the glory of Christ. It is now about his will. It is now about his ambition. It is now about his glory. Last week, we looked at his death that I've encouraged us to personalize it, that he died for you, that he died for me. It's because he loves us so that he climbed upon that tree. He, that tree. he willingly gave up his life to reconcile us 
back to the Father. That sin that was brought into the world through Adam and Eve, sin that is within our nature, not just our actions, but in my very nature, separating me from God forever, but because of Christ and the fact that he went to that cross, shed his blood and atones for our sins, he reconciles us, us, puts us back in right relationship with God through faith personalize that, and then respond. Last week, I encouraged us to respond, right? Jesus' call to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. That it's our responsibility, right? It goes hand in hand with that kingship that, kingship that we talked about, that lordship element of Christ, that he's not just Savior, but he's also Lord. And now I have taken up my cross. I have died to my flesh. I have died to my ambition. I have died to my will. And now I live for him. Personalize the cross of Jesus. It's not just add on Jesus, as I talked about last week. It's not like, here's my life, here's my ambition, here's my American dream, and here's a little Jesus sprinkled on top for good measure. But he reorients everything. That we let the gospel of Jesus, the work of the cross, undo our life. That I no longer live for me, but I live for him who claimed to me with his blood. Miss Georgine this morning shared with us our text. So let's walk through it together. John chapter 19, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Start in verse 30. We'll head on down through verse 42 to the end of the chapter. What we see here this morning is that all four Gospels, John chapter 19 here, but all four Gospels, Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and here in John 19, we get this... uh, that Jesus was crucified on the day of preparation, okay? That's a, that is a Jewish day. That is a Jewish holy day. It's a, it's, it is marked in time, right? We got our first glimpse of it, glimpse of it in chapter, uh, chapter 19, verse 14. It says, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. This was Pilate speaking, right? But this was the day of preparation, And now we get it mentioned in our text here today two different times. In verse 31, it says, Since it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that the legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. And then further down in verse 41 and 42, it mentions uh, this Jewish day of preparation again. It says, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb which no one had been laid, So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now there's some debates and uh, a little bit of confusion created by verse 14. Because verse 14 says, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And so when we Westerners read this in our English translations, it might seem that this was a day reserved for preparations for the Passover feast, which is a little confusing because we already know that Jesus and his disciples have already eaten the Passover meal proper on its appointed day, which was the 14th of Nisan. It's a Thursday. Christians now, today, celebrate Monday, Thursday, that last supper. But the day of preparation was not specific to Passover. Instead, it was actually what the Hebrew people would refer to as Friday, 
It's the day before the Sabbath. It happened every week. It was a time of gathering and preparing food and getting your chores done so that the holy day, that the Sabbath could truly be holy and honored in a day of rest, that no work would be done. And this particular day of preparation just happened to be the one during Passover, which we often think of as just a meal commemorating that lamb that was slain and whose blood was shed and was used to mark the lintel and the doorposts way back in Exodus, where God sent the angel of death, that judgment on Pharaoh in Egypt, and that by the marked blood of the lamb, that angel of death would pass over the people of God. But the Passover was more than just a singular meal. It was actually the start of a holy week, uh, a week-long festival called the, the Festival of Unleavened Bread. Oftentimes, that week was referred to as Passover, not just the meal that fell on the Thursday. So in John chapter 19, verse 14, where it says it was the day of preparation of the Passover, it might actually read a little bit better that it was the day of preparation, the one that happened to be during the season of Passover because the day of preparation was for the Sabbath and not for the Passover. So I point out this timing. And our scripture, our text today points out this timing, and it has great significance, not just for chronology, not just so that we can kind of get the timing of the way that this Passion Week happened in our brains, so we can get that right, but it, it has great, um, wonderful insight into the provision of God in the steadfastness and the inerrancy of Scripture. When we look at this text, we see that the fact that this was the day of preparation a day before a Sabbath, and that these bodies of these criminals could not remain on the cross, that in this, in our text today, we see that there are some beautiful prophecies fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And it just, it has struck me this week how detailed God is. And that he, he thought to include some of this stuff in our text here today so that we might know that Jesus is the Messiah beyond a shadow of a doubt, that we would know that he is the long-awaited one. That he's the promised one. The one who would come and redeem God's people. And they're all fulfilled in Christ. Read our text again. Verse 31, it says, Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So, that the, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and then of the other who had been crucified with them. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Now one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look upon him whom they have pierced. What's awesome about this is that this 
Friday, this day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath. No bodies could remain on the crosses on such a high day like the Sabbath that the Jews asked Pilate to break the legs of those on the crosses so that those bodies couldn't hang there, that those bodies would not be sitting there through the Sabbath. And again, crucifixion was meant to be slow and agonizing. This isn't lethal injection. This isn't a guillotine. This isn't beheading. This isn't hanging. This is crucifixion. The sole purpose, the purpose of it is slow and agonizing death. Criminals would hang on crosses for hours, if not days. D.A. Carson's commentary on this uh, points out that Rome was accustomed to leaving them hang there until they died and would even leave their bodies rotting up there until vultures would come and pick at them. It was public humiliation. It was public shame. It was meant to be slow and agonizing. But God in his providence, God in his timing, God to show that this is the Messiah just had to have it happen on a certain day. That these criminals could not be hanging up there, but when they come to Jesus, they find him already dead. With crucifixion, if, if, if for some reason death had to be hastened, the soldiers would smash the legs of the victims and they would use a large iron mallet to do so. This would create an initial shock and loss of blood that I'm sure would be a blow as somebody's struggling to remain alive, struggling for breath up there. That initial shock would be huge in itself. But of course, if your legs are broken, it would prevent you from pushing up. And we know, we've talked about it last week a little bit, that the cause of death in the cross was not the nails, but it was asphyxiation. It was the fact that you could not breathe up there. We talked about how there was this little seat or platform that they would put on the cross that would seem like a very gracious thing to give someone, right? If you're hanging up there, let's give you a little seat that you might be able to rest on or to push up on, but really that little seat was there to prolong the agony. That with each time you could push up on it and take a breath and fill your lungs, that it gave you just a little bit of hope to keep trying, to keep fighting, to keep struggling for breath, and thus to continue with the agony. Once they broke their legs and they smashed them with an iron mallet, they could only rely on their arms to pull themselves up. And they would soon give out and they would soon die. This was normal. This was the mode of Rome. So they go to the one criminal and crack. They break his legs. They go to the other side, to the other criminal, and with a loud crack, they break his legs. But God and his beautiful provision, they come to Christ. They come to Jesus. He's already dead. And if you think about it, if you think about crucifixion, it's actually kind of unusual that he would be dead. That is a pretty speedy crucifixion. 
Carson points out that it might be due to the heavy amount of flogging that he'd received. The unusual amount of beating that he had received. He had already given up his spirit and he had already breathed his last. And what's awesome about it? It was all part of the plan. The plan since the beginning of the world. The plan from the very beginning and back in Genesis when the seed of the woman the woman who was deceived, that the seed of that woman would crush the head of Satan, the deceiver. It was always the plan. God's plan to undo the curse of sin and the beautiful death of Jesus on the cross. And today our text highlights some of those small yet significant details, those amazing details that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the eternal one, the one who put on flesh, came down and dwelt among us, that promised Messiah, that God's plan is being accomplished in Christ Jesus, and in his death, in this moment, we find life. As his blood pours out, it atones for and cleanses every one of your sins. Every one of your sins that you have committed and every sin that you will commit is conquered in the death of Jesus. Let's read our text again, verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and then the other who had been crucified with them. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. For these things took place, and the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look upon him whom they have pierced. I love those little details. The fact that he was already dead. They did not need to break his bones. He was already dead, so they pierced his side with a spear. Verified by a witness, shared so that we might see and believe Christ as the Messiah. All part of God's design. Beautiful detail. Fulfills the scripture in Psalm chapter 34, verse 20. It says, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. See, his bones were not broken, and he was pierced in beautiful detail to the word of God. What's also amazing is the institution of the Passover supper, the Passover, the the meal that Jesus just shared with his disciples. In the institution of that, there's a commandment in Exodus 12 and in Numbers 9 that uh, a command to not break any of the bones of the lamb that was slain. That as they are commemorating his provision, as they are commemorating the blood of the lamb that marked the doorpost, that the angel of death passed over them, that when they do that, they are not to break the bones of the lamb. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 points out explicitly that Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. 
and he too, not one of his bones broken. The fact that his legs, his bones were not broken, and the fact that it was foretold of the Messiah hundreds of years earlier are just two examples of the hundreds of prophecies that are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Hundreds. We've talked about this before. Do you realize that there are hundreds of prophecies, mentions, or allusions of the Messiah, of the plan of God for the redemption of the children of God, the people of God. There are hundreds of them fulfilled in Christ. Hundreds. Conservatively, Jesus fulfills over 300 of them. There are a few scholars that would put them at between the four to 600 range talked about this before. Do you realize the likelihood of that? I mentioned Peter Stoner in the past. Peter Stoner was the chairman of mathematics and astronomy uh, in Pasadena City College uh, way back in the 50s. And then he moved on to Westmont College in Santa Barbara. There he served as a chairman of science. Uh, he wrote a book in 1958 called Science Speaks. And in this book, he, uh, he calculates uh, the probability of, of just eight messianic prophecies being fulfilled in one person, in the person of Jesus. So he's a mathematics guy. He's an astronomy guy. He's, he's a real math nerd. Anybody in here like that? Any of you numbers people in here? Yes, I love the admission. There's somebody like, like yeah, that's me. That's great. Love it. I'm not a numbers guy. Can't remember numbers. Can't, like, my wife is a numbers person. Like, my, my wife, yeah, I'm not. I can remember names okay, but I can't remember numbers. So he calculates the probability of just eight, only eight, hundreds. Conservatively, over 300 have been fulfilled in Christ. Eight of them. The likelihood of it. And, they, and they're big ones. Like the Messiah being born in, in Bethlehem. Micah 5, 2, right? That's a pretty big one. Messiah riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Zechariah 9.9, we talk about that one every year, right around Easter. The fact that he was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, the detail in the fact that it's 30 pieces is foretold in Zechariah chapter 11. Okay, so eight of them, probability of eight of them, not hundreds, but just eight. And again, he's a real math nerd. That probability is one in 10 to the 17th power. Okay, so one in 100 quadrillion. I was talking about that number with my kids. And I was like that's, like, a, that's like a number that kids make up when they're trying to impress their friends. It's like saying like a, like a million billions, right? Like it's just a million billions. But actually, I, I've done the calculation, and it's actually more than a million billions. And okay, I didn't do the calculation. I looked it up on Google. And one... Let's see, 10 to the 17th power, 100 quadrillions is actually more than a million billions. So here in our text, his side was pierced, his bones weren't broken, blood and water flowed, all as part of the intricate and glorious plan of God for me and for you to save us, to show us that Jesus is the Messiah, the plan of God for our salvation. It was all woven into the plan and foretold for centuries. And here it is culminated on this cross. To save you, to save me, 
to save us from death, to remove the poison of sin that has infected every one of us. And now, definitively, it is finished. Let's go back to the top of our passage today. Let's look at verse 30. That moment where Jesus dies, he breathes his last, his last words recorded. In John's account, it says in verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The Greek here, to telestai. The crowd would have heard him cry this out. To telestai. It is finished. I wonder if there would have been some confusion. Like, what does he mean by that? It's finished? What's finished? I'm finished? Have you ever been exhausted? Have you ever just gone like, I'm done. Okay, I'm done. I give up. I'm done. I've had enough. I, I, usually about 9 o'clock every evening in the middle of the chaos that is bedtime around our house, that's me. I'm done. I'm finished. I give up. But Christ here, he declares it is finished. The work is complete. The work for you, the work for me, personalize this. It is is finished. His sinless life led him to this place, to this moment of death for you and me. It is finished. His perfection, his sinless life, his righteousness, his holiness for you and for me, it is finished. His work is propitiation. We talked about a few weeks ago. The fact that the wrath of God that is just Right? It is just. It's not an over... Like, when we think of wrath, a lot of times we just think of anger. Just think of, like, somebody flying off the handle, losing control, flying off the... No! God's wrath is calculated. It is right. It is just for sin and for sinners. But Christ took it, and it is finished. He took yours. He took mine. And it is finished in here. He was forsaken so that we would never be. Christ was crushed and he received the full wrath of God that was due us in our sin so that we would be passed over by that angel of death. That we would not see the wrath of God by those stripes that he took on his back. By those stripes, healing is ours. It is finished in him. By his blood, that blood that covers and atones and washes us clean, whiter than snow. I love the poetry in Isaiah chapter 1, right? Though our sins were as scarlet, they are whiter than snow. Sins, scarlet, red, blood, red, pouring out, washing us. The sins that are scarlet, they are now white because of that beautiful blood of Jesus. That body broken. That blood that was shed ushers in this new covenant of Christ. It is finished. I think Hebrews chapter 10 actually really gives us a great summary of the work of Christ. In this moment, this Passion Week, this Passover meal, this time in the garden, this leading up to this moment Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 says, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of a true form of these realities, 
It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The law could never, could never make perfect. Otherwise, they would not, would have not, uh, would they, excuse me, otherwise they not, excuse me, <laughs> slow down, slow down. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any conscience of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O Lord, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those are being excuse me, sanctified. A single offering. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It is finished once for all, for you and for me. It's complete. It is full. It is finished and sufficient to wash away sin, to make righteous, and to satisfy the wrath of God. And we receive this all by faith. Something rather significant jumped out at me this week about the work of Christ and his final words. It is finished. And I noticed a phrase in this text in Hebrews today, Behold, I have come to do your will. It is said two times. Right? And, and something jumped out at me that it's not just this work of Christ that is perfect, but what has started all of this is that Christ's obedience to the Father is perfect. And it's culminated right here on the cross, that when Christ came into the world, he did it obedient to the Father. When Christ denied himself and lived that sinless life and, and walked this earth, he did it all in beautiful obedience to the Father. His sacrifice is perfect. His blood is perfect. It atones once for all. It is the better and eternal sacrifice to be received by faith. It is finished, but also his obedience throughout is perfect, and his obedience is finished. And we need it. We need the obedience of Christ that led him to this tree. You ever struggle to obey? You ever struggle to do what's right? You ever struggle to follow God's word? 
Jesus did it. His obedience is perfect. That obedience led him to the cross to die for your sins and for mine. He came to do the will of the Father. His life as a ransom, his life as a sacrifice. He said yes to the will of the Father, and it was perfect. It crushed him, it killed him, and it was necessary for me. His obedience is perfect, and it is finished. When he cries out, it is finished. Yes, the work is finished and complete. Death is defeated. But it's because his obedience is perfect and complete as well. It is finished. As we conclude this morning and as the band comes, God's plan is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. But it's not just God's plan for Jesus. It's God's plan for you and for me. God's plan for you and for me. We just read Hebrews chapter 10. I want to go back. Let's read a little bit of Hebrews chapter 9 together. Verse 24 says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. On your behalf. We talked about him being our advocate just a few weeks ago. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, had appe- he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it has been appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Is that you this morning? Is that you this morning? Are you eagerly waiting for him to return for us? That Christ has sacrificed himself, that Christ with his own blood, not not like a high priest who enters into the holy places every year with not his own blood, but Christ sacrifices himself and puts away sin once and for all. And us, those who live in him, by faith in him, receiving eternal life because of him, we eagerly wait his return. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Have you received Christ? Have you received his work? Have you received his obedience, his atonement? And have you received the person of Jesus and his glorious work by faith? And thus re receive salvation and eternal life that he purchased for you. Have you received Christ? As I've been asking you to do over the last few weeks is to really personalize this. 
Christ did all of this because he loves you. The Father sent the Son because he loves you. The Son obeyed the Father because he loves you. Because we couldn't do it. Left to our own methods, left to our own strength, left to our own tries, we would fail. Have you received Christ? Have you received his righteousness? Have you received his work for you? Have you received Christ? If not, just pray that prayer in your heart this morning. Make that declaration. Make that confession. God, I need you. Christ Jesus, I need you. I place my faith in you, in your person, in your perfection, in your life, your holy living. I place my faith in you. God, cover me in your righteousness. Make that your prayer this morning. Also declare, Jesus, I place my faith in your obedience. I place my faith in your work. I place my faith in your shed blood to cover and cleanse me from all of my sin. Make that your confession this morning. Make that your prayer this morning. And receive Christ's by faith. For all of us in this room, as we've touched on over the last few weeks, are we living in response to the obedience of Christ? Are we living in response to his obedience to the Father? Are we living in response of that by faith, a genuine faith marked with wonderful and worshipful obedience ourselves. Christ laid down his life for us to do the will of the Father. He did that for us. We in turn lay down our lives. We lay down our will in worship of him. A genuine faith lived in beautiful worship. Is that us this morning? Are you struggling? Are you caught up? Are you caught up in this life? Are you caught up in living this life? Are you in rebellion? Are you caught up in sin? This morning we confess and we repent. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your work for us, sending your son, Jesus. Jesus, we love you. I thank you, God, for the beautiful details in your word. The beautiful details in your word showing that you are true. That we can trust you. That we can put our faith in you. God, I thank you for your work on the cross. I thank you, God, that you've taken all of our sin. That we can stand before a holy God, justified, declared rights because of the work of Christ. God, we place our faith in you. Empower us by your spirit. 
God, to obey, to follow you, to take up our own cross, to deny ourselves, and to worship you with lives that have been abandoned to you. We'd no longer live to ourselves. We'd no longer live to our flesh. God, that we would live in beautiful reflection of you and your work on the cross. Thank you for your words. Help us respond to you today. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together.